Beatrixers, this is Wendy. And this is Paulino. And welcome to Wounded. Wounded. So this is a very special week, Paulino. Mm, why? It's our first collab. <laughs> it is. Would you like to introduce our guest here with us today? Yes, I would like to introduce Ricardo. Uh, my name is Rick. I'm part of Decolonized Buffalo podcast. I'm Comanche, and I'm grateful to be here today. Thank you. And we also have Robin. Uh, uh, good morning. My name is Robin. I uh, am also on Decolonize Buffalo. I also have two other podcasts, War Cry Podcast and the Little People Paranormal Podcast. I'm Yakima from the Yakima Nation up in Washington State, and I'm also half Comanche, just like Rick. And so we were so excited that they reached out to us. We're so excited. Actually, on their podcast, we're going to be talking about the little people, which is an episode we covered earlier mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. But we're going to go more in depth and kind of it's really interesting to just talk to other natives about these things. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited for both of these episodes this week. And with that, what are we talking about this week? We are going to be talking about a very dark point in human history. Ooh. Something that is kind of an unspoken part, I think, of colonization. Uh, and that is human zoos. Ricardo, Robin, have y'all ever heard of human zoos? I have not. Yeah, I've heard of human zoos, but I would like to hear more about them. Cool. Yeah, thank y'all. I think... Uh, Wendy and I had done some research yesterday together, and we knew that they existed, but I think knowing the extent of how they existed and the impacts that in many ways can still be felt today with this like society that we live in was kind of jarring. I was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe how prevalent a thing this was. And how recent as well as it was. Mm-hmm, very recent. So when we think of colonization, we essentially think of enslavement, displacement, and genocide of indigenous people from the Australia, Americas, Africa, Asia, Pacific, the islands, essentially everything but Europe. But we never really discuss the other side of the coin. We see we talk about the treatment and abuse solely committed in the native lands of indigenous people by colonizers, but never in depth the abuse native people faced who were taken to the crown, taken to the courts of Europe for entertainment of the aristocracy. Mm. Now, this was you know very well documented, very well done from, I would say, since colonization to like the 1700s. It's more of like an aristocracy game right? where rich people are able to pay merchants and people traveling to the quote unquote new world to bring in savages bring them over for entertainment as like gestures and stuff but it doesn't really become popularized to the masses till the 1800s where instead of having zoos or like circuses which we now know today they're more like freak shows okay and so these freak shows had native people there was Krau, who was a southeastern asian native woman who just had excessive hair but she was compared to apes Mm. there was William Henry Johnson, who was an African Congo man, but he was described as the closest link between the ape species and the Negro. Mm. And so this dialogue of freak shows comes into New York specifically, and then results in the creation of world fairs guided by this idea to then use it through anthropologists coming in from science. So we have Mm. the freak shows coming in with their idea of links of ape apeness to native people to then world fairs sort of taking this now in a global scale and then tying it to anthropologists and science. And Paulina, you're going to discuss more about that. Yeah. I think it's really interesting because it's like we grow up and we kind of see parts of this like on TV or in cartoons, you know, you see like the leftover of things like freak shows. And as a kid, I guess we don't think much of it, but looking at it in hindsight, it's interesting to see that it almost like it happened in a linear way Mm. of like, 
you know, these explorers and these people bringing back things from the colonies and all across the world. And look at these fascinating savages and the way that they live across the world as a very entertainment means, but being brought to the U.S. and almost changed into a genuine scientific field of study. And so the way that kind of goes into each other is just very interesting to me. I guess like I would think of it happening almost both at the same time. But it really becomes a field of, of science and something that many people believed. But like you said, we'll get more into that and how horrific that chapter is. So my question for Ricardo and Robin is, in the entrance of the World Fairs, how many World Fairs do you think had human zoos? <laughs> I don't know that. But I, I wanted to touch a little bit about what Paulino said about um, how this... Um, how it has carried on within our culture, if you don't mind. I agree with Paulino. You know, one example of this is like Indiana Jones, how there's mm -hmm. a white man that goes to like uncivilized, quote unquote, places and, you know, steals their, you know, sacred items. And then, you know, to me, you know, and then, you know, they, they put it in movies and then, you know, as, as entertainment. But this is like the old school, something that's carried on within our culture that I think is pretty disgusting. I think I think that, that movie and that character, him going, you know, uninvited to these cultural places, these sacred areas and stealing indigenous people's sacred items. And in the way they're portrayed as well, these indigenous people, to me, you know, it's, it's part of conversation, you know. And I think mm -hmm. even anthropology itself, it started as like, a study of civilizations, but it was almost like it, it wasn't almost, it was like compared to European civilization. And somehow, you know, like in anthropology was like, you know, the European societies is higher, quote unquote, in their point of view, when it, you know, when it wasn't. And they saw indigenous peoples all over the world as like uncivilized because they weren't just, they weren't like them. So I think we need to put that out of our heads that, you know, that anthropology or European sciences, you know, somehow is better than indigenous sciences or, or civilizations as well. So yeah, I agree. Thank you, Paulino. I, I don't know. I know that there's a lot. It has a lot to do with the colonization of the world. So world fairs in general are essentially our zoos. Even if human zoos are there to kind of exemplify what was seen as extraordinary as a way to, you know, make a mockery or solidify the case that indigenous peoples are more on an animalistic level rather than a human level. Uh, outside of that, uh, world fairs in general were essentially zoos of people as well, because a lot of the times world fairs were hosted by a colonialist country like mm -hmm. France or, or Britain. And it was essentially a celebration of that uh, colonial country to essentially brag about these are the countries that we've conquered, as they'd say, or they, how they felt like maybe they've conquered these people or colonized these people. They would essentially, even without the extraordinary, like within a human zoo, they would have them set up and like, do your culture right now. <laughs> like All these people are walking around, do your culture, show us you know, what you do, what makes you different. And, and that way they can show, oh, look at all of these exotic places that we've conquered or that, you know, we've colonized. And these are all of the, the different colonialist countries had different ways of seeing it. So if you think of it like uh, in the, the France in Paris World Fair in the early 1900s, it was more like, ooh, look at these exotic places, whereas like other places were more or less like, um, look at these savages, you know, which in a way 
was a bit more romanticized, but it was still a showcase of dominance. Mm -hmm. And essentially, you know, the underlying story of violence, of that conquering, of that colonization and dominance, that's essentially what it was, was showing the domination. And it was like, what would you say, like a peacing contest between countries saying like, this is what I have. What do you have? It's like, oh, well, within this country, we also have like these, you know, what they would call freaks. Oh, we have these, you know, extraordinary examples of, you know, human beings, you know, look, they are like animals, which was one of the biggest reasons why different colonialist countries justified their efforts in conquering and colonization. But thank you for telling me all of this, because it's like, I didn't know about the actual human zoo portion of it. But um, the world fairs are definitely, yeah. So we, I completely agree with both of you. And I think what's really interesting is what you were saying is that in the this sort of change between freak shows and world fairs, there is that tie of colonial power in the 1880s trying to sort of establish themselves and say, well, look, you know, like European people and American people in the 1900s, they began to bring in through their colonization of the territories like Guam, Papua Guinea mm -hmm. and different island groups. So in 1904, in the St. Louis World Fair, there is a creation of human zoos from all different parts of the world, right. which exhibited indigenous people. Mm. And that specific state fair had more than like 19 million goers that year. Uh, a lot of upper class white folks pretty much coming out to see the savages, to see the uh, the people of the colonies and how it was that they lived. Just like Robin was saying, it's like they were forced to play their culture to a point that it was it was truly an act. Uh, and it's like, look how we act on the daily, you know, to as a show for, for the people coming. Exactly. And Native people on display were put in sort of like fake villages mm. and made to essentially do their everyday lives. But these were not everyday lives. I mean, they were made to perform specific ceremonies and actions over and over again for the entertainment of the white goers. And as well, they would be poked. They would be made to compete and compare to white strength, I mm. guess, and athleticism. As well, they started testing pain thresholds. And they wanted to measure the heads because at that time, it was believed, specifically in Black or Aboriginal people, that Black men was essentially what connected orangutans to humans. And humans here would be white Anglo-Saxon people. Right. I know around uh, the same time, Wendy, is when a lot of Darwin's ideas. ideas of like social, what is the word? Like social evolution and basically how we as a people have evolved. I know Darwin himself also believed many of those things of African tribal people, indigenous people. He believed they were missing links and he believed they were more closely related to the other apes of Africa than they were to white people. And you can really see that now because you have people that cre were creating graphs, like anthropologists at the time in these world zoos were creating these graphs that kind of drew the profiles of like different races quote unquote but if you look at them they're literally just caricatures like they're racist caricatures of black people of east asian people of south asian people of native people that make us look very ape-like yeah. and purposely make us look more like the beasts that they're really trying to compare us to and i want to hear your intakes on this there was this man called alish heard Litkli, ricardo robin i hope i'm saying that Litkli. 
Lithcliffe? Yeah. Hirschlich. He was an anthropologist who also came there because the world fairs at this time are being led by anthropologists to do their human zoos. He specifically goes to the St. Louis World Fair in the hunt for dead bodies. Mm-hmm. And at the end of this event, he amasses over a hundred human brains. And all of them are labeled with, like, from what tribal people, where they came from, what land, like, the measurements of their skull, Mm -hmm. all kinds of horrific data. Yeah, so in my opinion, I think this dude's just sick in the head. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, there's no other way around that. It's, It's wild that, you know, you can gather that many, you know, bodies or parts of bodies of, of people from being part of your community and display them having bodies or, or you know people dead in, on displays in my point of view is wrong in the first place but mm. you know for science for this anthropology quote-unquote anthropology i think we really need to like and well people are talking about it now but you know talking about unpacking anthropology as you know um with its histories and, you know, and I think part of a little bit of um, history too is what I think it was Thomas Jefferson that went around and dug up native grave sites and, mm-hmm. you know, to, to study for anthropology as well. And that, you know, we, so it has a history. Anthropology has a really sick history of like using bodies of indigenous peoples around the world you know, for, for its science, quote unquote science. I don't, I don't even think it's science. I just think it's a, it's a fetish. It's more like a fetish, you know, but Mm -hmm. yeah. I completely agree with Rick there. I was also just making some notes. I really like the word he used fetishized because I feel like a lot of this has to do with like a a strange curiosity, uh, a satisfying of morbid fetishized curiosities from colonialists, from colonizers. And a lot of this, at least for me, it has to do with every colonial force and effort has like a caste system. And so with that, they could either apply it to like race, you know, like the Spanish caste system of like what's on top, you have like the, uh, the Spaniard, what's on bottom, you know, you would either have black or indigenous people or a mixture of both. And a lot of the times they used anything to justify these caste systems. And so once you get into like, okay, this person's indigenous, he's already, they are already at the bottom of our, our current racial caste system. How could we degrade them any further? Uh, and the reason you want to do that is so that you can have that free access to what it is that these people inherently caretake over, which is usually land or resources. And mm-hmm. so it's like, okay, how, how much further can we put them into this caste system to where it's like, essentially, they're not human anymore. And essentially that is, it's like, okay, so now that we're a colonial country and we believe in science, how can we use science to justify our caste systems? Oh, okay, we have this Darwin theory coming in that shows there's an evolution. If we could show that these indigenous people are lower on the evolutionary plane, then it also shows that like they don't deserve these lands that they're on. Like obviously us smarter colonialists, we should be able to um, have domain over this because we're the only ones that know how to utilize it correctly. You know, Mm -hmm. we're not the savages. And so that's kind of like, at least for me where it went into. So like, anthropologists, anybody that was in that uh, infrastructure of institutionalized racism and um, dehumanization would, of course, look for ways to continuously justify uh, this caste system of, like, uh, Native people, Indigenous people are not human. 
they're they're closer to animals you know what do you do with animals you just you don't feel guilty if they die you don't care if there's casualties uh you just need to get them out of the way so we can you know access this land access these resources and look we have this scale and because they look more like you know to them they're trying to justify that they look more animalistic or they they act mm -hmm. more animalistic or whatever it is that they're trying to prove um well we're going to now do some scientific studies, which is to show that, look, if I fill up this indigenous person's skull with seeds and I filled it up with somebody, you know, like my skull with seeds, like obviously my skull could hold more seeds. That means, you know, my brain's bigger. I'm more intelligent. I'm yeah. less connected to being an animal. So therefore, like my justification to uh, dominate these people or to, subjugate them to any kind of uh, scientific tortures or anything like that is justified. You know, they don't feel guilty about it and they can justify it to whoever, whoever their benefactors are, which is either their institution or if you get further back in history to like the king and queen, you know, of um, whatever country it is that they're trying to represent in that time. For me, this is just like, you see this time and time again in other different history books and history tales once you dig deeper into like you guys had said the darker side of history this is very common like let's find the weirdest morbid ways to justify what we're doing and say that it's in term it's, it's for science it's for the greater good of the country when really like anything that has to do with indigenous people if there's an open door to scientific research to adopting children to educating children or anything like that if there is an open access to people or their their dead bodies, or their living bodies. So you're going to see an influx of these like people with the morbid, fetishized curiosities will be the first ones there, you know, because it's like there's no justification in that system to um, to have any safeguards against that. But anyway, that was my rant for for that part. But yeah, totally makes sense. No, of course, rant away. This is what we do in this podcast. We literally rant in the middle of our right. cases. Robin just hit each nail on the head like as as they were going i was like oh my god it's true oh my god it's true <laughs> so in this zoo and it, it does get worse after the strictures it progressively what's about to happen and as we get specifically to the three murders are very well known in the human zoos it's just a lot to get mm -hmm. so let's be warned now the as i said the st louis world fair had Japanese Ainu people. They had Patagonia natives from South America, specifically Argentina. Hmm. They had Negritos and Igorots, yeah. which were always compared to us the missing links. And I'm so tired of this because it's like how many quote unquote native people are the missing links. Right. It's at a certain point, it's like your pseudoscience here of eugenics and like Darwinism needs to go. Hmm. And as well, they brought in pygmies from the African Congo. One of these pygmies was brought in by missionaries. There's a missionary called Verna. And the church's influence in human zoos and after all what happens later on in this case, it's really interesting because they somehow see themselves as like the righteous people, mm. but we're going to quickly find out they're not. Right. So they essentially bring over Otabenga and he is described in the zoo fair as an African cannibal. Mm. And for five cents, he'll show you his pointed teeth. Right. Now, he's brought back in 1906 to the Museum of National History in Manhattan, where he's just left there to wander around. But eventually, the museum's like, hey, you know, like, Odebenga, like, it's time for you to go. But Verna, who had debts at the time, didn't want to take him back. And so what he did was he essentially sold him to the New York Zoological Park, essentially the Bronx Zoo. 
And once there, he was put in display. And not only was he the only one put on display, I mean, Native Americans also put in display next to buffaloes. Mm -hmm. Like the whole point of this Bronx Zoo was led by anthropologists who wanted to display Native people and their natural habitats next to the Native animals. Mm. And it's like... I remember the quote of the organizer uh, of these zoos. He actually said, my dream is to see the Indian and his teepee in the same exhibit as the buffalo mm -hmm. and kind of creating that perfect picturesque scene. That postcard. Right, exactly. So that as these tourists are coming in, as white Americans are coming in, kind of like what Robin was saying is like they really get to see all of it. And it's like almost bringing, quote unquote, the colonies to them, you know? Now, Otabega was placed inside an exhibit with a chimp. Mm. They were both in the same cage. And he was put on display on September 8th of 1906. Over 250,000 people came out to see him. Mm. Now, the New York clergy was like, this is dehumanizing. This is degrading. How dare they? Mm. And for a second, I was like, mm, maybe, maybe they got it right this time. Well, actually, it wasn't the racism they were against. It was the fact that they were comparing him to chimps, mm. meaning that they were saying evolution is a real thing. <laughs> and right. the church was like, that's a no-no. Exactly. I think one of the quotes was like, you're making God cry. They really did say that because the church was really mad that uh, evolution was taking place of creationism at the time in most schools and textbooks. It's what scientists were really putting forth. And they were using all these black and brown indigenous people as quote unquote proof of evolution. Now, Werner, after this backlash, is like, mm, actually, we put him in the cage to look after the animals. Mm. So we weren't even trying to sell him. He was actually put there to take care of the animals, to have a job. He's mm. actually a worker there. Right. And the New York Times even prints out like statements and articles puzzled at why people are so angered by Otabenga being put there. Mm -hmm. Now, there were a lot of groups protesting against this, both in the is it the school or asylum for colored children who essentially was taken in orphans. And they said that if the state wanted to give him up willingly to them, they would take care of him and essentially take him to school. And the New York Times says that, how do we think that Otabenga is being ridiculed when actually if he were taken to an actual school where he would be taught to read and write and math, his home brain couldn't take it. He couldn't right. handle it. Mm. So obviously he was better off in this cage in the zoo. Mm -hmm. They made it seem that he would be ridiculed, basically, if he went to school because his intelligence was lesser than what would be his counterparts in the school. So he's like, they were like, oh, he's going to be even more ridiculed in school. Might as well leave him here where he's happy. And on Sunday, September 16th, over 40,000 people came that same day, just that one day. Mm. And that chased him all over the zoo to the point that Otabenga had to shoot arrows to stop them. And so he was caged again. Mm. Now, after such a fight between the African-American population and as well as the clergy, Otapenga is moved to an orphanage where he lived there for 10 years and then eventually shot himself in the heart. Mm -hmm. He committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And to completely mm -hmm. sort of muddle this poor man's, this poor young man's life, the New York Times writes an obituary saying that Otabenga was actually an employee of the Bronze Sioux, where he fed the apes, and he was very happy during his time at the, uh, at the zoo. Wow. Yeah, I want to go back a little bit about the church 
about the church. You know, the churches contributed to colonization, so mm. I, I'm not really surprised about the church's stance. I think they protect about they protect their own, um, they themselves and their ideas before they protect you know indigenous peoples. That's my own opinion. I'm, I have a pretty strong opinion about churches, <laughs> mm-hmm. but um, <clears throat> I don't. I, I'm not surprised by the church parts. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not surprised about any of that part. I mean, like early 1900s, you know, in, in, in America and, you know, Europe was pretty racist against, they still are, against indigenous peoples. You know, I wish this story was told more so people can understand our history. It, it doesn't really get told as much as, you know, this part of American history. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, just hearing the story is, is, is hard, you know, so... Yeah. And it's wild because, like, the New York Times, this is the New York Times that was giving everybody the update on the election. Right. And then, like, literally lasted 100 years ago. They were like, why is anyone mad we're putting black people in cages? Right. Yeah. It's kind of astounding to be, like, to realize how recent that was. Like, yeah. both my grandparents were already alive and well yeah. in 1906, living in the rainforest. And I'm like, at the exact same time that they're living their best life, this is going on here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this stuff, you know, it's it's not even that far you know what the the stuff that are uh, the the racism that um, our grandparents have gone through, you know. And right now we have a lot of uh, opportunity to tell people to fuck off, right? If they're racist towards <laughs> us, but mm. you know, it's still a lot of the stuff that you know that has happened. It still carries on, like the stereotypes of of you know, like people of color, you know. And we have to break those stereotypes. You know, and if we don't, they're going to carry on. And sometimes, you know, you know, I think not to try, uh, move off the course too much, but I feel like, you know, white nationalism, white supremacy is, is becoming more aggressive. So we really have to take a stance against, you know, any type of racial discrimination, any type of racial um, stereotype. So, yeah. Uh, Rick makes a good point there is just that history – will inevitably repeat itself a lot of these again as discussed earlier these justifications scientific justifications of uh superiority over indigenous people or people of color still exist today like definitely a lot of rhetoric of white supremacy has to do with um you know caste system uh, misinterpretations and these old ideas of white is right because, you know, we have all of this and this and this to back it up. So one thing that I did want to bring up is that a lot of this history is very tragic and very sad. So the story you have of that, uh, that man is very troubling and sad. And again, Rick, like Rick said, it should be in the history books. It should be taught not just to say, Oh, this is a sad story. But, you know, this is unnecessary, completely unnecessary. But let's see, the St. Louis Fair, what did you say? It was like in 1904. Uh, I had done a lot of research, you know, my undergrad years of the Wild uh, Buffalo Bills Wild West shows, which mm-hmm. is kind of the same premise for the most part. It was almost like the um, traveling version of the World Fair. And right. a lot of it was more seen in a sense of like a romantic kind of light of... Uh, like a fading, you know, Wild West, and they wanted to preserve it and show people, which is funny because it's like we think at that time as a Wild West, but they they already thought of the Wild West as being more of an ancient time for them, and they they wanted to scramble and hurry and document it. 
And when you see things like that, with efforts like that, especially with the guise of either uh, dominance or with romantization of history and people, it still falls within that like zoo type of uh, showcasing. So like Buffalo Bill was a bit earlier than the World Fairs, but they were still around in the same era. Uh, like 20 years apart, like if we thought about the early 2000s and, and you know, now in the 2020s, which, you know, seems like a fast time, but for them it was the same thing. So Buffalo Bills was like in the late 1800s, 1880s, and they showed, they went around the United States, they showcased different tribal leaders, like Red Cloud was a part of that, and I don't know if you've seen some, like, uh, movie depictions of, like, what this looks like, but essentially it was like, oh, look at this great chief, you know, he's still alive, even though... Like his uh, people were conquered and colonized by the United States. And so it's like those who shared in the romanticization went to go see him, but those who just wanted to, you know, throw their trash at him also came, you know? So mm. he was, um, he was essentially paraded around like a, a, a zoo animal as well, despite whether or not, you know, Buffalo Bill's seen in a light of having respect for native people or anything like that. He still was a part of that system of, Oh, look at this disappearing thing also from that era. And if you want to say also things um, that come out of these type of uh, showcases is they want to solidify cultures in that time. They want a snapshot. They want to have like this concrete model of this is what it looked like. This is exactly how they lived. This is what they did. Like these were the ceremonies. So you have people, I can't remember his name, George Catlin, who used to do uh, historic photos of Native people. He would he would run around with like Buffalo Bill. He was probably also the World Fair. You know, he would take pictures of what he would deem to be like the fading Indian or, you know, the fading, you know, Native people of the Americas. And I'm sure from other nations, because Buffalo Bill also had like Brazilian indigenous people. You know, he had indigenous people from uh, the South Americas, from other, you know, the different parts of the Americas. Um, all in that same guise of like, he may not be showing it as like where he's exploitative in a sense where he's consciously exploitative, but he's still exploiting. You know, mm-hmm. he's still exploiting for a financial gain. But what that does throughout time, which I don't know if colonial entities even s- foresaw a lot of this, but it also was like a cog and a, a nut and a bolt within the the colonial infrastructure of we're going to solidify this culture in this time. Anything outside of this picture is not authentic, you know? So it doesn't take into account that these native cultures evolve over time, that these indigenous cultures evolve over time, that at that point in time, that culture had evolved. You know, they could, you know, my, my personal tribe, the Yakima nation, we have a religion that we call Washat. And that's, I mean, in a sense of history, that's particularly new. It was within the, the late 1800s that that was brought to us. And so if they, and we still consider it very uh, traditional, we still consider it like a part of a culture, but it would be seen as like non-existent within these photos because it wasn't, you know, they didn't take a picture of it. So it didn't, you know, mm-hmm. it didn't exist. I think that was the one thing that is a residual of these uh human zoos of the world fair of buffalo bills wild west show is like the documentation is always solidifies these ever evolving cultures as like that's how they're going to be and if the evolution of these cultures makes it invalid you know for the rest of time because 
you're not allowed to get away from these images, uh, especially if they're depicted to show these native people are animals or <laughs> these native people are less than. Um, also, this was their culture. And if they evolved in time, then it's it's off the way beaten path of what's traditional because it's not within that picture. Whereas like a majority of these pictures were staged, just like what they're showing in these zoos. Right. Everything's staged. Nothing's authentic at all, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, or it's exaggerated. Like not only is it staged, it's exaggerated for entertainment effect. So that's kind of the one thing that I think, uh, I think would warrant some more history as well. It's just kind of like the evolution of colonialist portrayals of indigenous people, you know, throughout history, because it's like I said, it's an evolution of like, you have Buffalo Bill, you have the world fairs and you have the the zoos and then you have like current zoos, you know, and uh, I loved when we had uh, Kim Tallbell or tall bear on indigenous decolonized buffalo sorry i'm still waiting for my coffee to kick in (laughs) but (laughs) but i really like that she talked about even we now because we're compared we were historically compared with animals as a way to degrade us within our own cultures being compared to an animal was something of strength Mm. you know it was seen as something honorable because we you know i feel like in a lot of indigenous cultures animals are sacred things animals are things that we depend on they're powerful and so it 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 skewed our own visions you know to be insulted even when you think of it now it's like thinking i'm insulted the fact that i'm compared to a buffalo or i'm compared to a dog or anything like that whereas like before it's just like that would be something of honor within our own culture. And I think that's a part of like decolonization is just saying like, perhaps they thought it was a powerful thing to be compared to a powerful animal, but it was used in a degrading way, which made that, that whole relationship, it changed the relationship for the worst, you know, and throughout history, we, we saw it as a way that we adopted being less human is bad. You know, whereas like indigenous cultures, like, perhaps being less human and more, you know, in tune with our nature, in tune with our land, like the animals was something revered and honorable. No, we can, we completely agree. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think it's also to, to add to that, to understand how these were systematic attacks that were not done through like by, I would say small minded people. Like what I mean by that is essentially like, this is a consensus view that comes in from Harvard, Yale, MIT, Berkeley, Texas, Ohio state, like these top universities, these top anthropologists, these top scientists mm-hmm. are creating an image of what native people are not right. only to the public, but as Robin was saying to ourselves, like they are now redefining us. Because part of the way you keep someone in this category of savage of category of less is by making them believe it themselves. Now, it's, you know, we haven't really talked about the trauma of having to perform these acts of savagery Mm. because we have Moliko, right, Mm -hmm. from the Guineas, who she volunteered, 32 of her people and her volunteered to come to Europe to be presented. But they assumed that they were going to be brought over to showcase their own artisan work, their own pottery. They were promised that they were going to be paid accordingly, that they would see Europe, that they would be traveling a sort of a voyage, a sort of like a relation from their tribe to other European nations. Instead, they come into this sort of makeshift form of their like village 
They're mm-hmm. caged in, displayed in Europe, in Paris, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And only 10 of them return back home. Right. So it, it's truly the the amount of like psychopathy, I think that has to be in your head mm-hmm. to not only in like teach this, but indoctrinate it into your schools. Because this is now taught as a form of eugenics in kids. Mm-hmm. In biology class to the point that, and this is wild, this is really wild, that the eugenics group that's considered here cre- creates a booklet, a records office, mm. where when you're in biology class in 10th grade, you essentially are going to do your biological tree, where later on, if you ever want to get married to somebody, they're going to check if you have a fit family tree worthy of evolution, mm. meaning worthy of procreation. Because another part of human zoos is the aspect of procreation, mm. the aspect of having children. So in September of 1921, there is the creation of the Second Congress of Eugenics. Eugenics was founded by Darwin's cousin. Right. Interesting. <laughs> and this is when we have the creation and the idea of anti-vaccines and the idea that certain people need to be forcibly sterilized mm-hmm. and that immigration is negative because we're bringing in lesser people. And these are certain things that we've been talking about even now, like in this coming like election that, that just happened right now. Right. We literally talked about immigration. We talked about, you know, like vaccines, who mm-hmm. deserves asylum, who is considered worthy of the resources of this country. Mm. I feel like a lot of those, uh, I feel like a lot of those, Wendy, are definitely kind of like the, what's left with us from a time of human zoos, but also a time where colonial powers owned the whole world. And it's like these scars and these wounds are still very alive and well within us. Well, you have native people alive and well today that are bombarded with images of us from the 1800s. And it's almost like, like what Robin was saying, our culture isn't allowed to flourish and it isn't allowed to grow. But on like a physical sense, a lot of these eugenicists were saying that non-white people, specifically like black people from different African tribes, uh, indigenous people from different tribes here in the Americas, uh, at the time, Mexicans and Hispanics as well, they saw them as, you know, not figuratively, but literally as evolutionary throwbacks. Like right. they genuinely believed that these people by genetics were less than to the superior white Germanic male, which were their own exact words. And that led to so many, this idea that these people, that indigenous people were almost like a drain to society, right? That we were holding society back from evolving to the best place it could possibly be at. And that's where we bring in the idea of who can and who can't procreate. And they tried to put in lo- so many laws on indigenous and black people, of course, being forced sterilized at the time, but also people that they would consider, you know, quote unquote, mentally handicapped people like uh, from needing special aid to homosexuals, you know, to, to all kinds of things that they would consider backwards that wouldn't progress to the better of society which for them the best of society was specifically white germanic men you know that was the top tier uh the highest form of humanity that had so far evolved and it's interesting how these thoughts aren't necessarily new like they came with the first europeans uh they took hold through intense christianity Uh, And that was used to justify it. But as the years progressed, now science takes it up and is using 
the same using new scientific research to justify the same old story of racism of we are here and the rest of you are down there you know no completely agree and i think this is a part of history that we don't really talk about but the idea that the supreme court allows for forced realization to be legal in the united states through the buck versus bell you know bill and over 60,000 people are sterilized in the United States. Mm. This is, of course, indigenous women, African-American women, quote unquote, immigrant people. And like you said, people who were deemed non-worthy. Mm. You know, you're talking about people who have like the lobotomies, right? Like people who have the essentially those people we deem to be wild or mm. unruly, both wild temperaments, mental illness, or just solely for their own gender or identity or even politics. And so my question to Ricardo and Robin is, when do you think was the last human zoo? I know we talked about how many, but now we're going to talk about when was the last. Robin, you can go first. <laughs> Gordon's like, I'm going to Google that. <laughs> you know, I want to say that it's like early, mid-1900s. I know that they had world fairs until maybe like the late 1940s or even after that. Because I remember after that, like the 1960s, I can't remember what exactly kind of stop world fairs but i'd say within like the 1950s era but that's just a guess <laughs> but um just a note on for sterilization i was just going to say we see that now definitely yeah you know despite mm -hmm. whether or not we recognize human zoos um that are still happening probably to this day we see the force of sterilization and if we do not see forced sterilization, we definitely see historically where they would put indigenous people on the lands that they didn't want or thought deemed unusable. Like um, they make sure that every resource is tainted um, with biohazard or some kind mm -hmm. of like, you know, like even near my reservation, we have um, like, like radiation issues with our fish. You know, we have, you know, and if you look into the Pacific Islands, you know, they had a lot of uh, different bomb executions there, uh, testing sites. They use these sites where these in, they, they had places, indigenous peoples. So even if they didn't force sterilization in some of those communities, and they probably had as well, they make sure that every condition that these women and these families go through alters their DNA so that they don't have healthy babies or they're not able to have children. You know, and we see a lot of that. But I don't know, Rick, Rick, do you have anything else to say on that? My guess, and only reason why I'm guessing this is because Gwendolyn told me before the, the we <laughs> Cheater, cheating. No. The 90s. Oh, my Am God. Right? That's right, right, Ricardo. Yeah. Yes, April 1994, which is actually like a two months before I was born. Wow. Was wow. The, last, the last time. Um, in France, they set up an African Ivory Coast village. But at this time, like human zoos were very taboo. Um, so this was like a very hushy hush um, event. But that was essentially the last big one that mm -hmm. was ever done. Mm -hmm. um, but the actual with the World Fair, um, Robin was was more on the money with that one. Because the last one in a World Fair scenario was in 1958 in Brussels. That's when... Um, they basically created a Negro village, mm -hmm. which was where 267 Congo Africans lived there. And they were there for a couple of months. And what closes this down is it's, it's told it very nicely. Like, oh, well, the people started feeding them food and, you know, like the 
the anthropologists, the the owners of the zoo were like, oh, this is, you know, this is not. This is so demeaning. This is so demeaning. But what actually happened was that people started throwing food and nuts at them. Like they were like elephants. Mm-hmm. And so they had to close it down because then backlash came about. Like you can't be throwing food at people. Like what are you doing? Right. And so, but at the same time, there is that aspect of scientific testing. Now, tricksters, this episode doesn't really cover too much of the scientific testing that happened. I mean, we just covered sterilization a little bit. Mm. But there is so much more of how natives' bodies and black bodies, specifically black women's bodies, were used to, you know, have the modern modern science we have now. Right. Like, and the modern medicine we have. Exactly. So, but what these scientific tests were to measure skull size between length and width. Mm. And they tried so hard to figure out, like, to, to prove their theories that because of the shape of their brains, they must be less than other people. Mm. And so they would measure people's skulls. And if you were a regular skull, they would be like, get out of here. Like, no, you're an outlier. Right. They would then measure your brows, your chin, your nose, anything to show them that because you have a big nose or you have big brows or a big chin, then therefore you're less than. Mm-hmm. And to add to your point, Robin, when you ask why there, there is a big gap between the 1930s, because that's when actually the last zoos were like in the 1930s. But then again, in 1958, it's because of World War II. And out of World War II, eugenics, which mm-hmm. was very, very friendly with the United States until the 1930s, mm-hmm. becomes a very bad thing because of the Holocaust. Right. And so all of a sudden, this eugenics and Holocaust and these ideas are all of a sudden put under wraps and under the table because the world has condemned it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, now human zoos are very taboo. And therefore, as well as the idea that people of color or Jews are less than. Right. Yeah, which definitely you know, is, again, the basis and is the scientific justification of colonization or, uh, like, racial superiority, which, again, is the the fundamental basis of a lot of, like, white supremacy, you know, which is, like, we're just born better, you know, that kind of idea. And these are all the justifications. And I really, uh, I start thinking about when you're talking about how world zoos like within the 90s was very hush hush i'm like and again it just speaks back to that morbid curiosity and fetishization of you know different humans and um again i feel like making it a taboo thing would just attract those those like predators in a sense you know Mm. who who enjoy those type of things and and make it more of like a what is it they call it like more of like a invite type event like ooh, you know like not a lot of people see this you know it makes it more uh like people would want to see it because they can't you know that kind of thing Mm -hmm. um but one book that i would definitely suggest to all listeners would be like indigenous methodologies by linda dehewi smith uh she talks about that scientific justification of colonization she actually talks specifically within the introduction about how they would use to fill up skulls of indigenous people with uh, different kinds of millet seeds or different kinds of seeds to, you know, measure the capacity of their brain, you know, and also use that as a justification for superiority. But also just, um, she talks about science and taking science and methodologies to benefit indigenous people and how we would do our own science. Because, you know, if you think about all indigenous cultures, we're all scientists you know, we've learned through trial and error. We've learned through uh, deductive reasoning. Like, this is the best way to do this and this with our own lambs. So I feel like just because it's not written in a white book or because it's not 
a proven scientific method through uh, colonialist infrastructure or institution doesn't mean that it's not science, you know, and we've been doing science for centuries. It's like we say, just because we didn't have, we didn't need a wheel to move our, our blocks of stone around, doesn't mean we're not it, honey. <laughs> right. Yep. yep. <laughs> I love that. Oh, yes. I agree with Robin. You know, um, I mean, there's not much I can say. She really hit the spot when it comes to, you know, the observation. I just mm-hmm. think that we need to teach these histories and, you know, move forward with, you know, continuing to break the stereotypes. I, I really... Anthropology for me is like, I really have a hard time <laughs> with it, you know, and I had a, a recording like two weeks ago about anthropology. Can we decolonize the anthropology? We had, you know, different people on the show and they had, you know, different views. But I, you know, these are the conversations that they're going to continue to keep going. I think, you know, we just got to like criticize, you know, um, colonization we it's a lot more than criticize conversation. We need to like undo it. We need to you know dismantle it, abolish it. But you know when it comes to you know academia, we gotta really criticize academia and see you know can we do we have you know like can we have our own academia or, or can we or create spaces within academia? You know these are all conversations. I think um, um, when it comes to zoos, you know, infinitization of 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 our cultures and and our peoples, I think, you know, get us to stop, you know, and put our foot down 100%. Mm-hmm. No, of course. And I think, I think that's, that's the most troubling part for me was that these documentaries, these sort of books that we read, these articles, they don't really point it out to you, the sort of white supremacy and the white racism, you know, they say mm-hmm. eugenics. It's really interesting that when we tie eugenics or we tie murder or people of color, um, it's not tied to white people. It's sort of taught to, oh, we're, those, we're just the scientists at the time. Right. Without really understanding of the scientists at the time, we're white people. Mm-hmm. And so it's completely that erasure, that separation of guilt of sort of like, oh, it wasn't us. But yet when people of color commit crimes, everything is tied specifically, well, he did it because he was black or he did it because he was, you know, native or because he was quote unquote Latino or Hispanic. Mm. And so it's really, really interesting to also think about how, how close their United States relationship was with eugenics and how they could, I mean, they did, you know, they just, it wasn't a world war of, you know, Holocaust that they did. They committed genocide against native people, but it's this genocide that it's committed in Europe that sort of separates the eugenics out of the United States sort of scientific research in a, like out of the scientific community, because mm. now it's a no, no. Mm, but before we end this episode, we want to cover one last uh, murder specifically that happens um, of Tambo, whose name is Kukamunbura. Now I, was a little like skeptic about saying their traditional name because as we know tricksters as we covered aboriginal australian people you're not allowed to say their names once they've passed because right. it brings the spirit back but because of the significance of this cultural like, figure mm-hmm. aboriginal people themselves say the name of this person mm, interesting so, gugambura was an aboriginal australian he was essentially like a young man and he was tricked into taking this sort of voyage to europe so on the way to Sydney from their village, they kind of slowly realize what's about to happen. They're about to be taken. He and several people in his community tried to escape. But Cunningham, who was their capturer, essentially finds him and removes all the clothes from the people. 
He removes all the clothes so they won't run away. Still two escape. Not only did these two escape and get free and try to fight off their capture, but they get arrested. And actually the courts determine that these people not belong to Cunningham. Wow. Then they are taken to New York where they performed for over 130 American shows and cities as well in Canada. Again, they performed for 30,000 in his trips and his voyages. He fell ill and died while on tour. Cunningham, the owner, quote unquote, of him, mummified him and sold his remains to a mortuary, which later then used it for a zoo. Right. Um, not a zoo, I'm sorry, a circus show. Mm-hmm. Still, the troop that was with him moved to Europe. So they weren't even allowed to mourn him. Mm. And that's where the majority of the group died in Europe. The Aboriginal Australian communities fought for many years to find his body. And in 1993, Kukambura was found in the United States in Cleveland, Ohio. Wow. He was found in the basement oh. of a building. And his remains were brought back and buried. And he's currently now in his homeland, resting with his ancestors. But it's really important to talk about the trauma, the abuse that not only these Native people felt, but that their descendants and their communities feel, right? Of course. It's, it's important to sort of understand that these actions didn't stop there. As we said, they happened all the way to the 90s. Mm-hmm. And these were more hush-hush. There's like other ones that you know, are still happening right now, right? Like slavery is still a very much big thing in the world. Mm. And overall, there were world zoos in Amsterdam, Spain, Cincinnati, St. Louis, New York, London, Hamburg, Manchester, Frankfurt, the Netherlands, and Brussels. And so we truly see the amount of colonization, of fetishizing, of obsession with Native people and placing them and keeping them in a sort of light and idea. To me, it's just really hard to hear this because, you know, it seems like all, most of these stories are like people being tricked, you know, you know, into like coming to certain places or, you know, and then when they go and then even, even after they pass, their bodies get, you know, like treated as like, even like without respect, they don't, they don't get to with respect. Like they don't get buried. They don't get, you know, cremated, none, none of that stuff. So it's just like, even after they pass, they get treated as like, like an, like an object, very, very like European way, like, like, you know, capitalism and like, Oh, this person, now his body is a possession. And it's just like, dude, this is like a, what he was like a, a living person, you know, and it's to me, it's really hard to hear, you know, stuff like this. I don't know. I agree because, you know, on the one hand, it is very disheartening, very sad, and it makes within myself, it creates this feeling of unjustified, you know, it makes me feel uh, revengeful, like <laughs> wishing I was a vigilante, like how can we reach back into time and correct this? Because, you know, generations on down, that still continues within that person's family. You know, what did their family go through looking for them, finding out about them? Um, You know, just a complete degradation of a human, which, you know, if they want to compare themselves to something, not compare themselves to the honorable animals, but just the 
the complete separation of being a human in the worst possible way, you know, not compared to animals, just something inhuman. And for me, you know, as I'm on this podcast, I'm actually like, I was scrolling through Facebook and I saw pictures of these indigenous children, native children being forced to go to um, like boarding schools and things like that, which also is disheartening. But, you know, I look at those faces who were, who are probably like, great grandmothers some of them died some of them have been through some horrific things but in the end it's like we always have to remember that we have this resilience within us and that you know as cliche as it may sound but we're still here you know and i think perhaps the fetishization the fetishization i can barely say that word but (laughs) yeah (laughs) But with that is is almost taking like a, a 180 instead of like this morbid curiosity. It's almost like I, I know that there's a movie out about um, there's still this curiosity about the genetics of native people, of indigenous peoples. Mm. And almost like to where it's like, well, why have they survived so long? You know, like, why are they still here? You know, and it's a lot of it is the culture and our resilience and, and the will to keep going despite every turn having to fight for your culture, fight for your family, fight for your, um, just your life, um, your honor, your, your body. And, um, now you see the romanticization again of that. Um, I think there are like movies out about, and you know, they're made by native people, which kind of makes it fascinating, but, uh, I can't remember what the name of it is. I know it's on Amazon prime right now, but it's about like zombie apocalypse and how the only people not affected are the native people, you know? Mm, <laughs> so it's just yeah. like, I forgot the name of it, but I'll, I'll have to send it along when I find it. But there's a resilience, you know? I, I have to acknowledge that even with myself, and then I also have to say the prayer for those, you know, my own spiritual prayer for those survivors, their family, and the ones who had passed on. And I think the reason that the indigenous people do say their indigenous name still is because they survived it and that person's spirit is still alive within their communities, reminding them of their survival and of their their resilience, uh, despite every odd, every single odd uh, for hundreds of years, you know, by decolonizing forces or by by colonizing forces, essentially trying to rip them apart every which way. Um, And so in terms of a human zoo, I think we also have to acknowledge that not only were those in efforts to to show a dominance and colonization of the native people, but it's I think we have to remind ourselves as native people and indigenous people that those are also colonizing forces for their own people. They colonize their own people first. They colonize their mind to think as a as a colonizer. Or to know that even though they're supposedly a part of a dominant culture or dominant whatever, they're still under the thumb of something higher than they are. They're not free. And as easy as they could do that to indigenous people, that could be done to them as well. Uh, just as, you know, altogether, I just, I'm saying a prayer within myself for all of the, those who had suffered through all of these atrocities. You know, they didn't ask for these things, but I also applaud their survival 
I applaud their their descendants and their family for their survival. And um, thank you so much for like educating me on this. Um, I, I see now how it fits into a lot of the history that I knew. And it's just reinforcing like my pride as being an indigenous person and being a survivor and a descendant of survivors. Thank you. Yeah, I, I agree, you know, and I, I want to thank you for, you know, having me on the show and, you know, uh, talking about this. I think, you know, we need to have more conversations about um, colonization and, and its past effects, its uh, present effects and how we can dismantle it in the future, you know, and, you know, it, it's, there's, there's so many conversations in, in how we can do it. And, and you know, um, I just hope that people seriously listen. And if they don't understand something, you know, on, on your show, podcast, and um, or my podcast, they should ask, you know, because sometimes I feel people, they listen and they kind of like tune out because they don't understand. But I think, you know, asking and having dialogue is, is the most important part of, of, you know, like moving forward. No, we completely agree. And we're so thankful to you both for, you know, reaching out and being part of us, our episode today it was so nice to speak to you both. We're so thankful for the time you've shared with us, the breath you shared with us. Um, and as well, Robin, we always do, um, we always ask our, our tricksters and we ourselves burn sage and burn tobacco on behalf of all the people that, you know, die and have been lost and have been misplaced and abused due to colonization and genocide. With that, we want to thank you all so much, Tricksters, for listening to this episode. Ricardo and Robin are part of the Colonized Buffalo podcast. You can listen to our episode um, when next week, right? This episode that we're going to have record with you all today. What's today, isn't it? Oh, when are you going to post the episode that we're recording today is what I wanted to know. Oh, I don't know. Whenever. <laughs> Soon. <laughs> well, you can catch the episode that we'll be recording with them. <laughs> Suit it up. Uh, but with that, you know, reach out to them. I mean, Robin, you also have another podcast as well. Yes, I do. I have a war cry podcast about missing murdered indigenous people and women and men and children, LGBTQ and two spirit. Uh, and then I also have uh, little people paranormal podcasts about uh, paranormal goings ons uh, with indigenous people. Right, so tricks with us right up your alley, like honestly. Right, totally. Like, I love that. <laughs> honestly, <laughs> let me tell you, Robin, when they start asking you for like the creepy, there's some spirits that they want us to cover that I'm like, I don't want that in my house. I don't want that <laughs> in my house, in my space. No. Yeah. But again, thank you so much, Ricardo and Robin. And as always, Chach Bye. Bye.